So let me ask you to take your Bible and turn again to me with me to Hebrews 12. Uh, we didn't get all the way through this passage last week, so we'll finish it up this morning, verses 3 through 11. And after you have found Hebrews 12 in your Bible, why don't you stand with me? Let's uh, read it together. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come again in your name and to uh, worship you. And Lord, uh, we thank you for uh, the opportunity, the privilege that we have to uh, assemble in freedom here in this country and to uh, express our love and our devotion to you through our hymns, through our singing, and uh, through our worship in other forms. Lord, we thank you for the joy of being able to give for your purposes and to support your work around the world. And Lord, we pray this morning for our missionaries who serve. Lord, we pray you would abundantly bless them. Lord, we also uh, desire to be your people in this community. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live a godly life, a Christian life, to walk in holiness as you desire for us to. And Lord, we know uh, that we fall short, uh, and yet by your grace, you have allowed us not only to be saved through faith in Christ, but also to become sanctified and to become increasingly Christ-like so that we can make a difference in our world. So, Lord, help us with that. And, Lord, this morning, as we think about suffering, as we think about persecution, help us to know that you have a purpose even for that. And, Lord, uh, help us to uh, be open and receptive even as we experience sometimes your discipline and your chastening, that we might uh, have your perspective on it. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless, again, uh, your word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 12, 11, 3 through 11, deals with the subject of the discipline of the Lord. 
And because the original recipients of this book are suffering persecution, the author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, raised this specific aspect of adversity as a possible reason for their suffering. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And sometimes our suffering is His chastening to accomplish His own good purposes in us. God often uses discipline and hardship in the life of His children as a means of training or as a means of helping us mature. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate three primary purposes for the discipline of the Lord. First of all, His discipline may be for the purpose of punishment. Some of His discipline is a direct result of our sin. In the same way that you punish your children for disobedience, so the Lord punishes His children for the same. Now, it is important that we understand the difference between God's discipline of His children and the judgmental punishment of unbelievers. As Christians, we may have to suffer consequences for our sin, but we will never face judgment for them. Christ has already paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, so we will never face God's judgment for our sin. Unbelievers, on the other hand, will face His wrath, but His own children will not. However, there are still consequences for our sin, even as His children. And part of that is in the form of His chastening. This type of discipline is always corrective and never judgmental. He deals with us as a father, not as a judge. Now, there are many examples of this kind of discipline of the Lord in Scripture. David's sin with Bathsheba, followed by the murder of her husband Uriah to cover it up, brought about some very painful experiences. And yet God used those painful experiences in his life to draw him closer to himself. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday nights, and we have seen that the Corinthian church was very immature and carnal. Among other things, these fleshly believers were abusing the Lord's table. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 to 22, we're told that there were some who were using the Lord's table as an excuse for partying with some of them even getting drunk and of taking advantage of the poorer members of the congregation. And of course, Paul rebuked them for this, and he explained that it was for this reason, among others, that they were experiencing the discipline of the Lord. But the interesting thing is that Paul told them that some of their sickness And some of their weakness and even death was part of this package. 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. This is serious stuff. 
The discipline of the Lord may result even in physical death. And we know this is what he's talking about because verses 31 and 32 say, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the worlds. This is talking to believers here. And Paul is saying that the chastening of the Lord, even of his own children, can even result in physical death. And this tells us how serious sin is. And it also tells us how painful his chastening can be at times. But it is never to condemn us. It is always to correct us. It is not his wrathful judgment on sin that unbelievers face, but it is his loving discipline as our Heavenly Father. And of course, we who are parents understand this kind of discipline because we have to do the same thing with our own children. We discipline them to correct them, not to disown them. In the same way, God disciplines his children not to condemn them and to remove them from his eternal family, but to draw them closer and deeper into fellowship with him and with other believers. And by the way, it is often hard for us to see the purpose of God in this form of discipline in the very same way that it is often hard for our children to understand the good in our chastening of them. But we as parents understand that our discipline is motivated by our love for them. And we know that it is for their ultimate good, so we do it. And in the same way, because God is a loving Heavenly Father, He will never do anything for our harm. But he always disciplines us for the purpose of our ultimate good. His discipline is intended to restrain us from our sin and to correct us and to set us back on the right path. It is part of his best for our lives. Now, we see this principle even in the Old Testament. In uh, Psalm 89 31 and 32, we read this. If they, that is my people, violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. What is God saying here? He's saying if my people disobey, they're going to get a spanking. But on the other hand, the next two verses say this. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. In other words, I'm not going to disown them. They are still under my covenant. They are still my people. And again, God's Discipline of his children is always corrective and redemptive. He has a purpose in that to correct us. But there's a second 
purpose that the Bible mentions in regard to the discipline of the Lord, and that is prevention. Prevention. Sometimes God disciplines us to prevent us from sin, to keep us from sin. In the same way that we as parents put limitations on our children to prevent them from harm, so our Heavenly Father may discipline us to protect us from something that He knows will ultimately harm us. Listen, have you ever considered that what may seem to be a terrible inconvenience for you right now just might be the protecting hand of the Lord on your life? Maybe you're suffering some sort of hardship and you're not even aware that this is the providential hand of God in your life. Sometimes things don't quite come together the way we would want them to come together because God is providentially protecting us. He sees the bigger picture that we can't see. And many times His discipline takes the form of preventing us future harm. Maybe we're trying to put together that business deal that we think will take us over the top. Or we're working to form that partnership that we think is going to allow us to uh, reach the next level. But God sees that is not something good. And He may intervene in His providence to protect us from harm. Have you ever considered that? Do you remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? The Bible tells us this was part of the providence of God in Paul's life for one specific reason, to keep him from wrongfully exalting himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, we're told that God allowed this messenger from Satan to buffet Paul. Paul did not enjoy this thorn in the flesh, and in fact, he prayed three times that God would remove it. At the very least, it was a great inconvenience, if not an outright form of suffering. But when the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in your weakness, he gladly accepted it from the Lord's hand and later even boasted about it. MacArthur says he learned that not only this thorn, but many other hardships and afflictions were being used by God to make him better. Paul went on to write, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes God disciplines us to protect us. It is to prevent us from harm. So we need to have a different perspective when we suffer in some way. Often our sickness or our lack of business success or our other problems are given by God to keep us away from something worse. But there's a third primary purpose 
for God's discipline, and that is for our education. The discipline of the Lord will teach us if we will listen to what God is saying to us through it. Sometimes the discipline of the Lord is a way of getting our attention to teach us something important about the Lord. It might be to teach us that He is absolutely sufficient. It might be to teach us that He is all-powerful. You see, when things are going well for us, we might have the tendency to become complacent. Prosperity has a way of making us feel self-sufficient and independent. So sometimes he has to shake up our world a bit to get us to change our perspective. In the case of Job in the Old Testament, it is obvious that God allowed Job to suffer greatly in order to teach him some things about himself that he would never have learned otherwise. And the truth of the matter is there are all kinds of lessons that we can only learn this way. And sometimes it is needed, his discipline is needed to shake us from our selfishness and to teach us sympathy toward others. Sometimes it's used to teach us our total dependence on God. But one thing is for sure, we can always know that His discipline is always for our ultimate good. That's why we can be thankful for it, even when it is painful. But only the perspective of faith allows us to see it this way. Well, that was kind of a long introduction, but it's important, I think, that we get the context for this passage. Let's move back into it. And we started through this passage last week. We're taking this in four main divisions. And we began by looking at the example. Look with me again at verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 3 is a transition verse between the admonition to run the race of faith and this section on the discipline of the Lord. Some of the Hebrews were apparently saying something like, Oh, poor us, no one has ever suffered the way we have suffered. So the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, Listen, consider Jesus. You have not even begun to suffer like he did. You have not given your life and poured out your blood as he did. And verse 4 tells us that none of them had died as martyrs at this point. So the admonition of verse 3 is that if they look to the one who died in their place, they will gain the perspective that God wants them to have. He also, of course, as we said last time, Jesus suffered similar persecution at the hands of the Jews. He had endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And so the author of Hebrews wants them to understand their identity in that and to be able to become strengthened by looking to Christ. Secondly, we saw the exception. 
Look at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He's not promising them that they will not ever become martyrs, but he's saying, so far none of you have given your life for the sake of Christ. Even though they had suffered more than most people do today, they had not yet suffered to that point. They had not suffered even as much as those in the previous chapter who had given their lives. And they certainly had not suffered as much as Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we saw the exhortation. Beginning in verse 5, there's kind of a shift. There is the change of analogy from that of a race to that of a family. And the key word in the rest of this passage is the word discipline. It's the Greek term padeia, which is a reference to the training of a child. This term is used nine times in just eight verses. But the exhortation here is based on Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. And he's going to quote that proverb in verses 5 and 6, and then he's going to give an exposition of it uh, in the rest of the passage. So look with me at verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. That phrase, you have forgotten, can be put in the form of a question. Have you forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons? Did they know this truth? Yes. What was the problem? They had forgotten it. And so the author of Hebrews is pointing these Jews to a truth they had forgotten. It is the truth that is pre- presented in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. It is the truth of God's word concerning his discipline of his children. And we spent a lot of time on that last week. I won't go back over that all this morning. But we need to move now to a fourth point, which is the exposition. The exposition is given in verses 7 through 11. He follows the quote of Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 with an exposition of that text. And in this exposition, he lays out three truths. First, he gives us the conclusion. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have been partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The receiving of discipline from the Lord is evidence that we are indeed his children. Only the sons of the father receive his discipline. Now, I'm sure all of you at some point has thought that you would like to discipline someone else's child, right? I mean, you see an unruly child, maybe in the grocery store or something, and you think to yourself, if I could only have him for about a week, 
I could straighten him out. But of course, that's not how it works, right? You don't discipline someone else's children. You only discipline your own. And one reason for that is because you do not love them as you love your own children. The relationship is not the same, and therefore the concern is not the same. So this is the conclusion of the author of Hebrews. Those who are receiving the discipline of the Lord must be his children. They must belong to him. And we know this is true because he scourges every son whom he receives. That's part of the quote from verse 6. If you're his son, you're going to receive his discipline. His discipline is proof of our sonship. But on the other side, if you're not receiving the discipline of the Lord, you need to ask yourself whether you are truly his child. The phrase, he scourges every son, is inclusive. You could read it this way. There is not a single son of his that he does not scourge. If you are receiving his discipline, then you are his son. On the other hand, if you're not receiving his discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, back in the last part of verse 6, notice the phrase, whom he receives. This phrase is exclusive. It is only those whom he receives who receive his discipline. And those whom he receives are those who are his sons by faith. But there's another very interesting thing about verse 6. The word for scourges there in the New American Standard is from a word that means to flog with a whip, which was a common Jewish practice. It refers to a severe and painful beating and is something, of course, that is no longer politically correct in our day and time. But the point of Hebrews 12.6 and the proverb that it is quoted from is that God's discipline can seem very severe to us. And the truth of the matter is that there has to be some pain in discipline or it may not be effective. This is one of the primary problems with the way parents often discipline their children today. And of course, this has been the result of pressure that has been put on parents to give up on any kind of corporal punishment for their children. But it has produced a generation of children that is nearly out of control. Teachers often do not know what to do with these children because they have never truly been disciplined, at least in a manner that is effective. And so we have to give the kids drugs or we have to employ some sort of radical techniques to control their behavior so teachers can even teach in the classroom. Now, I don't want to get off on the rabbit trail of physical earthly parenting this morning. But the truth of the matter is, if we truly love our children, we will discipline them. And we will continue to discipline them as long as they are under 
our care. To fail to do that simply means you don't really love them. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares the rod, again, it is an instrument that brings pain. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14 says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. Now, people today would say, that's barbaric. No, that's the wisdom of God. Hebrews twelve eleven tells us discipline has to be painful. It has to hurt. George Guthrie writes, we live in a time when certain kinds of parental discipline, especially those involving pain, are viewed as unacceptable by many. It is not uncommon, he says, to hear a social commentator proclaim the emotional and psychological damage done to a child by any form of negative treatment, be it a spanking or a verbal rebuke. But he goes on to say, my point is that if we hold to a theory that disallows any form of pain or unpleasantness in the training of a child, we will have difficulty either grasping or applying Hebrews 12, 3 through 13, which assumes that parental discipline involves pain in some form. He says these points on the human side of the analogy, are inescapable. Parental discipline is mandatory for the well-being of a child, and it is painful for the child. Folks, we just can't get around those two facts, which are clearly present in this passage. But getting back to the purpose of the passage in Hebrews 12, we can be certain that God loves us if we're receiving his discipline. And what is his conclusion here? Discipline in the Christian life is not in spite of sonship. It is because of sonship. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? A truly loving father, or you could read parent there, is absolutely committed to helping his child achieve the highest of standards. And if that is true of earthly parents, how much truer is it of our Heavenly Father who loves us perfectly? God is committed to inflicting pain on us in order to conform us to the image of Christ. So this means that we should have a totally different perspective on suffering. We should see it as the Lord's loving discipline in our lives, accomplishing His purposes. And unbelievers who are well-off and popular and seem to have everything going for them, we should not envy them. We should pity them. They're not sons of God. They are illegitimate children. They do not know God. And really, any time that we are experiencing the discipline of the Lord in some sort of suffering, we really ought to say, 
Thank you, Lord. You have proven again to me that I am your child. I belong to you. Secondly, he gives us the comparison. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now, this is what is called an a fortiori argument. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If something is true in a less important arena, it is even more so in the greater arena. The less important situation in verse 9 is the discipline given by an earthly father. Human fathers are given respect when they discipline their children as they ought. And since that is the case, then God deserves far more reverence from us. Indeed, we should submit to him as the father of spirits. And when we do that, we will truly live, he says. Guthrie says the present, in the present context, the author suggests that in the face of difficult circumstances, we should bow our will to the will of the Father since His will is the path that leads to life. Now, there's, sir, there are some important implications there in verse 9. First, there's the reality of the fact that it is the disciplined child that respects his parents. One of the surest ways of losing the respect of your children is to never discipline them. Children have a built-in recognition of this. Even while they may seem to resist the painful discipline, at the same time they recognize they ultimately need it and end up very insecure without it. Deep down inside, children know that they need boundaries and they need correction from their parents. Those who don't receive it will end up resenting their parents and may even question their love. But those who receive it will ultimately respect their parents for lovingly and faithfully giving it. Children inherently know that if their parents just let them have their own way and never discipline them, that the parents don't really care. Even as earthly children and as parents, we understand this principle. But the emphasis in this particular passage is on God's discipline of his spiritual children. Our response to the discipline of the Lord should be more than just respect. It should be submissive faith. It should be a recognition that he has the right to discipline us as he sees fit. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that this kind of submissive faith is what leads to genuine life. And when we are subject to the Father of Spirits, we will have a richer, fuller life. Then, lastly, we see the consequences. Look with me at verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. 
earthly fathers do the best they can. And they discipline for the purpose of helping their children become as mature as possible. But our Heavenly Father disciplines us so that we will share in His holiness. That is God's ultimate goal for us. As we read in 1 Peter 1.16, He says to us, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God wants His children to emulate His holiness. And of course, unlike human parents, God is perfect in His discipline. Earthly parents do the best they can, but they always fall short. Earthly parents are not perfect. He is. I mean, think about it. Sometimes we discipline out of anger instead of love. Sometimes we fail to discipline as we should. Sometimes we punish more severely than we ought. Sometimes we mistakenly punish a child for something he did not really do. We make mistakes as parents. Earthly parents do the best they can, but it is always imperfect. Sometimes parents make mistakes. But God's discipline, on the other hand, is always perfect. He always exactly gives us exactly what we need at exactly the right time, exactly to the correct degree, and exactly of the right sort. And His discipline is always for one purpose, to make us holy. And of course, we know that positionally in Christ we're already holy, but He wants us to be holy in a practical way. And so this is the work of His sanctification in us. But notice verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline is not intended to be pleasant. If it was pleasant, it wouldn't be effective. Corrective discipline has to be painful, but the fruit of it is always worth the temporary pain. And in the same way that people will endure surgery followed by painful physical therapy for the sake of restored physical health, so those of us who know the Lord and trust in Him, will endure God's discipline and come out stronger and more physically, I mean, more spiritually mature as a result. One of the consequences of the Lord's discipline is righteousness accompanied by its fruit, which is peace. And from the perspective of faith, this eternal fruit is worth the pain. The word for have been trained in the Greek is the word gymnazo, from where we get our English word gymnasium. Listen, working out at the gym is usually difficult, if not grueling, but the end result is better health. The athlete knows that he must endure rigorous training before he is ready to run the race to win. So the training becomes joyous when he has finished going through it. The end result is what brings the joy. J. Adams wrote, Nobody ever said that discipline would be 
pleasant. It isn't. But righteousness, the pleasant result of such discipline, is like a fruit into which you bite and discover it tastes like peace. If you want peace, it comes from righteousness. And that comes through discipline. And this is why we as Christians should really cherish the discipline of the Lord. Although we don't seek it, we should rejoice when it comes, knowing that it will produce the eternal fruit that God intends. There is a famous quote from C.S. Lewis that goes like this. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Someone else wrote, so what do I say? I say, let the rains of disappointment come if they water the plants of spiritual grace. Let the winds of adversity blow if they serve to root more securely the trees that God has planted. I say, let the sun of prosperity be eclipsed if that brings me closer to the true light of life. Welcome, sweet discipline. Discipline designed for my joy. Discipline designed to make me what God wants me to be. What is your perspective of suffering? I pray that we'll get God's perspective on adversity and pain that we face in this life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to Gain your perspective, Lord, that uh, you've given it to us very clearly in your word and help us to understand it. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illumines our minds to the truth of these principles. Help us to live by them, not to just hear them and walk away, but help us to incorporate these things into our lives. And Lord, as we at various points experience your discipline, your chastening, perhaps adversity that you have allowed to come into our lives, help us to grow thereby. And Lord, help us to just trust you that you are accomplishing your purpose through it and help us to live by faith. Lord, I pray if there is someone here today that has never received Christ today, I pray that they will come to know you in saving faith. And Lord, I I pray that all of us would do what you would desire for us to do in response to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.